Well, good morning. Well, very nice to see everyone this morning. That was a very lively greeting time, so good job, everyone. <laughs> Sometimes, you know, it's a little bit like you have to get it going, but this was a good one. Why don't we go ahead and pray as we open the Word of God this morning. We're going to be in Isaiah chapter 22, but first and primarily, we will pray before the Lord. Father, we are thankful for your Word. We are thankful for this church, that Lord, it's a church that's hungry for your Word, and we know that this is something that is taught by you, and that is something that is learned by you. And so I ask, Lord, that you would instill in us even a deeper hunger for your Word, and that, Lord, by your Word, we might see our Lord Jesus Christ in a greater way, and that, Lord, we might see that you are our only hope of salvation, and that we might look to you in every situation in our life, knowing our true spiritual state and how we are hopeless without you. And, Father, we ask that you would bless this message, bless these words, speak to our hearts collectively this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, good morning. As I mentioned, our chapter this morning is Isaiah 22. I am really enjoying this series in Isaiah, and in particular last, last Sunday's sermon, just to second Mike's comment about the watchman and that role, I was just kind of blown away by that chapter. And so we're in Isaiah chapter 22 this morning. Our title of my message is Spiritual Myopia. Spiritual myopia. And for this chapter, we're going to look at a very visual, thematic look at, at this chapter in a, in a way that emphasizes things that are visual around us, because there is a lot of power in things that are visual. You know, you just think of TV and movies and, and television shows and the power they have on us and how, how rested our attention is, if you will, on these kind of media, even more than radio. You know, radio or podcasts, I listen to podcasts and radio, and I, you can do other things, but with television, you have to almost give it your entire full attention because it's coming to you through your eyes. And our eyes have this way of arresting the whole of our attention. Whenever I, I come home and Alyssa has the TV on, she likes to work with TV on and kind of clean around the house, she'll be talking to me and I just can't focus because just the TV, even if it's like a dumb commercial, I just can't focus and I can't hear whether it's TV or let's say I'm watching a baseball game and stuff like that. I can't concentrate because of the power of the visual image in front of me. And the power of images usually comes through the, the power that expectations have over us. Let me give an example. This is why television shows usually end with a cliffhanger, because if it resolved in like the first episode, if you will, you're not going to watch the next one. You're going to have this kind of resolution inside of you. And so they know this, writers and producers of TV shows know this, and they want you to wait in expectation for the next thing, whether it's you know the next play in a football game or like the very next pitch in a baseball game. You don't know what's going to happen, and that expectation causes you to give it your full attention. And so those writers know what they're doing. That's why it's, you know, it's hard to do something else. Alyssa has mastered it, but I can't do anything else with the TV on because it, it arrests my attention. But they know what they're doing. They are professionals at capturing your attention. And in this way, Isaiah was a similar kind of professional having the role of a prophet. And Isaiah's role in Judah here is pleading with them, delivering the word of God to them to bring their attention back to God. 
he's bringing their eyes back to the Lord through the word of prophecy. And that's kind of his role, is to bring their attention back to God, back to faithfulness with him, and to wait for him with great expectation. And so we understand that there's power in the prophetic word. Proverbs chapter 29, verse 19, which is kind of often mis not misquoted, but more generally quoted. It says this, where there is no prophetic vision, the people cast off restraint, but blessed is he who keeps the law. And you realize that the prophet's role in this time, and you know, the role of prophecy when we might think about it today, is simply to bring our attention back to God, to fix our eyes on God, our spiritual eyes, if you will. But the problem was that Isaiah's audience, Judah, had become numb to Isaiah's role. Even though he preached the word of God to them over and over and warned them about coming judgment for their sins and their disobedience and their, their worship of false idols, they had become numb and deaf in their ears, and so they didn't have that expectation. They weren't looking to the Lord anymore. And so they were exhibiting a sort of spiritual myopia, and myopia simply means a nearsightedness, that they weren't able to see the Lord in a situation because they were obsessed with the short term of things. And so this disobedience and this numbness was directly contributing to their lack of spiritual sight. They weren't able to see what the Lord was doing. And so we come to this oracle or word of prophecy, and it's concerning the valley of vision. We see uh, Isaiah chapter 22, starting in verse 1. He calls it the oracle concerning the valley of vision. And it's not exactly certain. Isaiah doesn't explain to us why he uses this phrase to describe what we'll find out is actually an area that includes the general area of Jerusalem, if you will. But it's sort of ironic because it's a place where God's people, where Judah exhibited spiritual short-sightedness. And they weren't able to see the Lord, if you will. They were not looking to him in this situation. And so we see that this is an oracle concerning the Valley of Vision, and it's, and it's ironic, if you will. But we'll continue to read Isaiah chapter 22, verse 1. It says, the oracle concerning the Valley of Vision. What do you mean that you have gone up, all of you, to the housetops? You who are full of shoutings, tumultuous city, exultant town. Your dead are not slain with the sword or dead in battle. All of your leaders have fled together. Without the bow, they were captured. All of you who were found were captured, though they had fled far away. Therefore I said, look away from me. Let me weep bitter tears. Do not labor to comfort me concerning the destruction of the daughter of my people. So this prophecy is God responding to a situation, circumstances in Jerusalem that are already in progress. And God asks, what do you mean about this? And so, looking at this chapter, we might try to place it, you know, in a specific historical context. And we're like, what, what exactly are they doing? What exactly does this describe? And we will have kind of clues later in the chapter on where exactly this era is in, in Judah's history and what other nations, how other nations are relating to them. But the more broad theme for us today, the broad point of this chapter, is that it describes an era concerning 
the spiritual state of Judah. It describes their spiritual condition. They are in the suspended state of shouting and exultation and commotion, and it's largely due to the lack and a failure of the leadership in this time. So God looks on their situation, and he asks them to account for it. And this can be also translated, not only what do you mean, but also like what's gotten into you, what's wrong with you, what ails you. I remember one time, it was probably the closest time I ever had in a, to a car crash, and, and I almost pulled out in front of a guy who was speeding down the road because I couldn't see around the bend. And he just narrowly missed me, pulled over, we, we both pulled over. I was completely shaken up. I was a very young driver at the time. And the guy comes over like this. I don't know, he was comically walking toward, like, I don't know, that's how I remember it. But I was so shaken up, and the guy goes, what's wrong with you? And... I just remember that was kind of a situation where he's just like, how do you, you're not driving okay, like are you okay? He was genuinely concerned. It sounded like a mean thing to say, but I started to realize as I was talking through it, and you know, when my blood pressure started to drop a little bit, I realized, okay, he was genuinely concerned for me. He wasn't just mad about it, but he was genuinely, he's like, are, are you sick or something? Are you okay? And this is kind of what God's asking them. He, this is what he's asking Judah he isn't just taking them to task for like a, a lack of social decorum, but he's actually saying, are you sick? Because they were demonstrating, they were displaying signs of a sort of spiritual sickness. They were going to the rooftops, and often, you know, people would go up to the rooftops for different occasions, sometimes mourning, but in this situation, they were going to the rooftops and they were celebrating. They are exultant, which means they were rejoicing. And it's a big commotion, almost that it sounds like, almost so much so that it almost sounds like a battle. You might be reminded of, like, uh, I thought of the situation where the, with Moses and Joshua and Aaron had made the golden calf at the bottom of the valley while Moses was on the hill getting the law of God. And Joshua is listening, he's like, it sounds like there's a battle going on. And Moses, because God had told him what's going on, said, no, it's actually singing. They're celebrating in this case. And it was this chaos because they were worshiping a false idol. And so this is the kind of, it's a similar kind of chaos of rejoicing. And they are ecstatic with their situation as though they've won some sort of battle. It's a boast of their situation, but it's really nothing of the sort as Isaiah describes the reality that they are living in. We see that the dead right here, are not dead of battle, which means that they're probably dead of siege, and that their leaders have fled and left their responsibilities behind. And so they are almost like in a terrible situation without even a shot fired. And so it's just this failure of leadership, but they still had some kind of positive thinking going on. But it was this positive thinking that was impoverished, if you will, and it couldn't make sense of the true condition that they were truly in. And so seeing that these people do not understand the situation for themselves, Isaiah takes it upon himself to weep for them. And he says that I'm, in verse 4, he says, Look away from me. Let me weep bitter tears. Do not labor to comfort me concerning the destruction of the daughter of my people. So Isaiah delivered this prophecy. It's very tough to be a prophet, you know. If, and he, he's delivering it faithfully, but to great personal cost. And he realizes this is just hurting inside. And he says, don't even labor to comfort me. Look away from me. Don't, don't even contact me because there's no way you can comfort me in this situation. Have you ever seen like an email from, it's like an automated email and it's like, it says, 
do not reply to this email because no human will see it or something like that. But that's kind of what Isaiah was saying. Do, do not reply to me. Don't say, oh, you know, calm things, calm down, you know, things aren't that bad. Because Isaiah could not be consoled because given the circumstances, he perceived that their destruction was inevitable and it's about to be brought, brought around by the Lord's hand. And so he just says, don't look at me. I'm in, I'm in utter mourning for the situation and they're rejoicing. And so Isaiah describes, as we continue on in verse 5, he describes the day of the Lord. He says, for the Lord God of hosts has a day of tumult and trampling and confusion. It's a battering down of walls and a shouting to the mountains. And Elam bore the quiver with chariots and horsemen. And Kir uncovered the shield. Your choicest valleys were full of chariots, and the horsemen took their stand at the gates. He has taken away the covering of Judah. And we'll stop right there. And so, this is... Judgment Day. This is Isaiah describing Judgment Day for them. And it's described a little bit similarly. There's kind of chaos and confusion, just like the celebration, which means that maybe there's a way for it to transition very easily from joyous celebration to outright catastrophic destruction. And so we go through this, and it's just this terrifying situation. And they, they are close to you can kind of tell like how dense the population is as though it was a siege because the horsemen are coming through and they're, and they're trampling probably because people are, are so close, huddled so close together and they're battering down walls and where they were previously shouting for joy at their rooftops, they're now shouting out of terror to the hills. And we see two nations join in, come on stage to attack them. We see Elam and we see Kir and those aren't, you know, nations that are around today, but we do know that these are nations that were subservient to the Assyrian Empire, and they were harbingers, and they, they were like preludes to the coming destruction. They were heralding kind of the beginning of the end for Judah, knowing that they were there, and they were at the gates, the full forces of Assyria couldn't be far behind, right? And so the valleys we see here, which might have been full with architecture. They were the choice, not architecture, maybe architecture, but also agriculture, I meant to say. They were full of chariots. The things that were previously beautiful are now going away, and they're overrun with you know, military tanks we might think of today. And so, lastly, we see the, the kind of concluding idea in verse 8 that he has taken away the covering of Judah. And we'll continue to read, he has taken away the covering of Judah, and in that day you looked to the weapons of the house of the forest, and you saw that the breaches of the city of David were many. You collected the waters of the lower pool, and you counted the houses of Jerusalem, and you broke down the houses to fortify the wall. You made a reservoir between the two walls for the water of the old pool, but you did not look to him who did it, or see him who planned it long ago. So what is happening here? What is Isaiah describing? Well, he says that the covering has been taken away. Even as, you know, the, the nation of Kir, they're uncovering their shield. God is uncovering the true weakness and the true state of Judah. Their situation is dire. Their situation is terrible. And this covering was kind of like their, God's taken away their insurance policy, if you will. And it's usually been represented in these past few chapters by the nation of Egypt, 
with whom they allied. But now that Egypt's been gone, Egypt's been conquered, they really have nowhere to turn. And so what is their plan B? What's simply self-sufficiency? We're going to batter down, we're going to try to wait it out, because that's all they had to turn to. And so they go to this place called the House of the Forest, which is actually just a house that Solomon had built. It's likely that Solomon kind of used it as his own home. But apparently there were weapons and things in that house, but there's no indication that they found a significant amount of weapons or found anything of worth there in that kind of arsenal. And so they, they look around and they're trying to survey the situation, and they saw that the, the breaches of the city of David were many. And so they, they tried to respond to that, and they also saw that they, they needed to collect the waters of the lower pool. And so they're, they're trying to tackle all these things, and what do they do? They actually break down houses to try to repair the walls. And you realize they were in full emergency mode, they were in full in panic mode, and you have to imagine that they had to go and count the houses, and then they had to go and decide who really needs a house, because we're going to break these down to repair the wall. And we see their true desperation. And they were very ambitious in their endeavor to fortify these weaknesses and their things. And we also see that there was a dire need of water. And if you were looking at verse 11 right here, you're like, oh, what, what is this reservoir situation? Because the text spends a little bit of time talking about the pools of water and the reservoir between the two walls for the water of the old pool. And we think, like, well, what is this situation? What is the big deal about this reservoir? Well, it was an engineering feat, and it was brought on by King Hezekiah. And it was his project to build a reservoir for water. The Bible calls Hezekiah a good king who did fear God. But he actually, his problem often was taking too much pride personal pride in his own works and his own buildings, and God had to humble him multiple times. In 2 Kings chapter 20, verse 20, we see that, among other things, Hezekiah was the one who brought water into the city. That's how he was known. So he brought water into the city so that they wouldn't have the weakness of going outside the city walls or, or having a gap open in their walls for a stream of water to flow in. He used a reservoir, an underground tunnel, that was probably a huge project in order to protect their water supply and to limit the security risks of Jerusalem. Some months back, we, we studied Isaiah chapter 7. That was, a, that was a while back, wasn't it? And at that point, in Isaiah chapter 7, Isaiah goes to meet the king, and it was King Ahaz at the time, who was Hezekiah's predecessor, and he met him at the upper pool. And he realized in that situation that even King Ahaz at the time was preoccupied and was really concerned about the water supply. And rightly so, because a water supply is important. Without a water supply, if the city was under siege and they had no way to get out, I mean, what would they last? Maybe three days, maybe four days, if they had no water. But this seems to have been a pressure point, a pain point with God, because they had overconfidence in this reservoir. They were very proud of this reservoir, and they thought that, oh, we are self-sufficient now that we have water. We can, we can rely on this thing. And so this overconfidence in this reservoir means that God wasn't giving them 
commendation for their emergency preparedness and their reactions to the situation. But God actually kind of rebukes them. Why? Because in verse 11, the last part of the verse, because God rebukes them because you did not look to him who did it or see him who planned it long ago. They forgot. They didn't look to God who did this or planned this. They didn't see God in this situation. And we might look at that and we're like, exactly what is it that God is saying he did? Who did it or, or planned it? Is it that God was saying he was a better city planner for, for, the, nation, or for the city of Jerusalem? Is it that God had brought this entire situation upon them so that they would look to him? I think it's simply all of the above. That they forgot the power of God who could deliver them and who could also provide for them. They forgot the power of God who gave them water in the desert when they were coming out of, the, coming out of slavery from Egypt. In Psalm 78, verse 15, what it, we record and we, they sang about what God did. He split rocks in the wilderness and he gave them drink abundantly as from the deep. So what's the thing that they really should have done instead of all these other things, all this kind of busyness and desperation? They should have looked to the sovereign God who did it and planned it and foresaw it, but they did not. Though this was the valley of vision, they did not actually see the work of God in here, and they did not even look or seek to see God. They were exhibiting spiritual short-sightedness. They saw all their entire situation, and they didn't see God. But how, exactly how, I keep using this phrase, look to God, seeking God, watching in expectation for God. But how does one even look to God in a situation like this? We might think of, you know, the cliche, oh, don't look at your problems, look to God. But you might be thinking, well, my problems are visible, and God is not. I don't know if you realize that, Jared. But look, looking to God is a picture of faith. It's a picture of learning about God and learning that he is trustworthy and delivering and relying on him with hopeful expectation. In Psalm 123, we, we read, To you I lift up my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens. Behold, as the eyes of the servants look to the hand of the master, as the eyes of a maidservant to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God till he has mercy on us. That's what it means to look to God, to have expectation from him. And so the eyes, if you will, are a picture of faith. Faith in situations where you absolutely need deliverance. And so looking to God means to simply trust in him, to rely on him. Psalm 34, verse 5, is another description of looking to God. And they, if there's a promise in that situation, or in, there's a promise in that verse about looking to God, those who look to him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. Those who look to God receive, if you will, this kind of afterglow glory from God, and they realize there's, they're filled with hope, and the, there's no point where you can just look to God and look at him too much, you know, to put too many eggs in that basket, if you will, to look at him with overconfidence. You can't outplan, you can't be too confident in the Lord because you will never be ashamed when you trust in him. 
the theologian John Owen, who is a Puritan, he describes the believer's act of looking to God as this. He said, it is their faith which is expressed by their looking to him, which is nothing but that beholding of his glory. For it is an act of trust arising from an apprehension of who and what he is. To break down that, it's simply that when we grasp who God is, that should simply make us trust him. So, what was Jerusalem's situation? Well, it was pretty bad. Jerusalem's, God gives Jerusalem, if you will, kind of an eye exam, and he gives them this diagnosis. They are without leadership. They don't know where they're going, what they're doing. They are without insurance, and they are spiritually blind. We see all that right here, that they do not see God. They can't see him. It's not within their realm of vision. And so what is God's prescription, if you will? What will bring them to terms with their, not only the situation and the really close circumstances, but what will bring them to terms with their heart and their true spiritual state? What is God's prescription for them? Well, it's simply repentance. Repent. And so in verse 12, we see this. In that day, the Lord God of hosts he called for weeping, and he called for mourning, for baldness and wearing sackcloth. But behold joy and gladness, killing oxen and slaughtering sheep, eating flesh and drinking wine. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. And so the Lord of hosts has revealed himself in my ears. Surely this iniquity will not be atoned for you until you die, says the Lord God of hosts. This is a terrible situation. And what does God say? Oh, make sure you get good building supplies. Make sure you do this and have a military strategy. No. And in fact, it seems kind of an inefficient way to react to their situation, which is simply to mourn. Go find sackcloth, take the time, and shave your head. Reflect on your true state. And we have to ask, why does God prescribe mourning for them? After all, I mean, you know, we often, we've had sermons on, you know, delighting in God and having joy. But their problem was that they were having these parties and partaking in this joy and this exaltation, and all the while they weren't seen the direness of the situation. And so God's saying, how can I make them see their true spiritual situation? They need to sit down, they need to think about it, and they need to mourn. Because if they begin in self-sufficiency, and they think they're all that, they're not going to be able to see right and read their situation correctly, and their situation will simply end up in destruction. And so God clearly condemns this type of spiritual, or this type of self-sufficiency so that they can see the miserable state they're in. Because there is great promise in repentance. We might think of something like weeping and mourning, you know, like kind of some kind of penitence, that if I am sad enough, that I'll be a better person. You know, like little orphan Annie who's, you know, beaten down and downtrodden, and we see oh, you know, that's created, you know, 
who she really is, and it's come out that she is more loving because, you know, she is in a bad situation, or, you know, she is kind of beaten down in this situation, but to be honest, like, being in a bad situation itself, or even acknowledging that you're in a bad situation doesn't automatically fix it, but for our relationship with God, mourning over our sin, and realizing there is no other hope for us to save ourselves from our sins and the things that separate us from God and condemn us eventually to an eternal state of destruction and punishment, when we realize that there is no hope for us but God, that invites God to come and bring his consolation and his salvation. So it's not just that being sad makes the situation better, it's that being sad invites the presence of God in their life. That's why God prescribes this for them. In Isaiah chapter 57, verse 15, God says this, I dwell in the high and holy place. God's high and holy way, separate from us, but he also dwells with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit. Contrite is a word that simply means, you know, crushed, crushed with sadness. And God says he dwells with him too. And he revives, he is there to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. We also see the other prescription that James gives us in the New Testament, James chapter 4, verses 8 through 10. He tells the believers who are engaging in worldliness and self-sufficiency, he says, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. How? Well, cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. So that's the prescription. No more self-sufficiency. No more, you know, national pride for Judah. No more arrogance. No more keeping up appearances. God tells them this so that they might return to him and that he might come and heal them and comfort them. But God turns and looks, and after he's asked them to weep and mourn, he turns and sees their true state of affairs and the kind of people they prove themselves to be with their reaction. Verse 13, And behold, joy and gladness, killing oxen and slaughtering sheep, eating flesh and drinking wine. And what do they say? Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. They were in reckless abandon, if you will, in their circumstances. And they were spiritually short-sighted. And it was, if you will, functional, like, atheism. They were carousing, and they know the end is near, but they don't see anything past it. They know the end is near, but they don't want to be conscious or sober for it. We don't know whether they said, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. But this is meant to describe their sentiment, their actual situation. And deep down, it's meant to describe what they do know about it, but what they refuse to accept in their actions. And this is the apex of Judah's spiritually dead state. And the sad thing is that they know a little bit about their situation, but they refuse 
to think about it. And they eat, and it's not, you know, to be, to regain their, their strength, but it's eating to forget their state. And all of their planning is really like, hey, let's have one last hurrah. Let's not, let's not just go out like a, a normal nation. Let's not just collapse. Let's go out with a bang, and let's have a party. And that's a terrible situation. In his book, Richard, uh, the Puritan Richard Elaine has a book called An Alarm to the Unconverted, and he calls out the unrepentant person, unrepentant person who knows what is coming, who knows what is right, but refuses to think about it. And he says this, he says, O oh man who has bewitched you, that in matters of this present life you shall be wise enough to forecast your business and to foresee your danger and to prevent your ruin, but in matters of everlasting consequence shall be slight and careless if they, as if they little concerned you. So Judah's eyes were on the immediate. They're like, okay, we'll do these things. We'll have these preparations. But there's going to be a day coming where we know it's going to be the end. But we kind of don't care. And we kind of just want to be happy and live our last days, you know, to the fullest. And so we know that the, we find out the problem was not just the surrounding nations. The problem was that they were trying to undercloak, or were trying to cloak an undercurrent of despair in their hearts. They were being honest, if you will, to an extent, but saying, well, we really don't want to think about tomorrow. And we see that often, it seems like we see that more and more in a lot of popular songs and a lot of movies where they've gotten very honest. Like, we know that there's, you know, so we know that we're all going to die someday, so we just better make, the full, better make the most of it. We know that our situations are terrible and we're depressed and we're in despair, but why don't we just go and party? And that seems to be what a lot of even contemporary pop songs are saying. So we have to ask ourselves... What about us? Do we grasp our true spiritual state before the Lord? Have we come to terms with the situation that we're in, that our hearts are really the problem? We may, you know, respect someone who's just kind of arrogant and maybe over-courageous, and they, they approach death, you know, in the, in the face of just dire circumstances. They're just reckless in the face of death. But God doesn't commend such a person if they're absolutely reckless with their eternal state. And so for, for Judah, God has this decree. He has a really bad prognosis. And he says, he's revealing himself to Isaiah's ears. And he says, surely this iniquity will not be atoned for you until you die. In other words, this will have no atonement. This kind of sin, this kind of behavior will have no forgiveness and that's not the most hopeful verse to end on today. I wish I could have given you like a great promise or something like that to, to give you as a send-off when Isaiah 22. But just remember that this is after God's call to repentance over and over and over again. This is after God's extension of mercy toward them over and over and over again. He's calling them to a proper response to their sin. He's calling them to mourn, and they come and outright reject that call on their lives and they prove by their response to be utterly faithless but we should also take to heart something else in verse 14 that God is still revealing himself to Isaiah 
And Isaiah is still functioning as the role of, still functioning in the role of a prophet. So that God didn't say, okay, well, I'm not going to talk to you anymore. He's still delivering words and he's still giving them prophecies and encouragements, if you will, and warnings, even even though they're in a spiritually hopeless situation, militarily as well. And so God continues to speak to the prophet, even if it's these kinds of words. And so maybe if we're in a situation and we think things are really dire, just remember if you can still hear the word of God audibly with your ears, if you can still understand the, the scriptures according to you, God is still speaking to you. I hope you realize that. If you're still hearing, you're still receiving a word from God. And there is always hope in that situation. And so, in closing, we should just remember that God proves himself by disclosing himself to us in his word. And that word trains us to look at him, to look to him. And it trains us how to look at an invisible God spiritually and to hope in him. And that's where scripture comes in to give us and to help us with our spiritual sight. And so when we look to God for our salvation, we, I'm going to end with a couple notes on why to look and where to look. In Isaiah chapter 45, verse 22, we see why to look. God says, turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. Why to look to God? Because he is the only Savior. He is the only God. He is the only one who can deliver us and save us in a situation. He's proven himself trustworthy by the history of his faithfulness to his people, which we read in his word. And so we should simply look to him for that reason. But we should also ask where to look exactly. Where to look at what way, what terms on which can we approach God? Well, simply, we should look to Jesus. Colossians chapter 3, verse 15 says, He is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn of all creation. And he later says in verse 19, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on, heaven, or whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And so when we look to God, God says, hey, look to Jesus. He's the one that I've sent to you so that you may look at him and that you may live. He's the one who holds forgiveness in his hand. If you simply will look to him in faith. And so we ask lastly, when to look. I mean, you know the answer to that. When to look to God for salvation. We look to him for salvation today. I don't know if you ever heard the story of Charles Spurgeon's conversion, but he was stuck in a snowstorm, I think, if you will. Something, it was, it was either that or it was very dark outside, and he just kind of walked into this random church. There were very few people there, and he even notes in his autobiography the preacher actually wasn't even very good. And the preacher was just preaching from a text And it happened to be Isaiah chapter 45, verse 22, where God says, look to me and live. And the preacher was kind of like rambling on for 10 minutes. He could tell he wasn't a very educated man. But he said one thing, and he said, 
simply look. Simply look. And he said, you don't need a degree to look. You don't need training to look. Even a child can look. And Spurgeon said, I was ready to do 50 things because of the spiritual, knowing his spiritual state. He says, I was ready to do up to 50 things to gain my salvation from God. But when he realizes, when he realized that's all it took to simply look to God in faith, to look to Christ, he felt this huge weight. And I call to you today that it's simply that. It's not complicated. You just simply look to God in faith and trust in him for your salvation and God will deliver you. And God will come close to you. And God will deliver you from all of your sins so that you may live with him in eternity. So thinking about that, why don't we pray? Father, we are thankful again for your word. And we're thankful for the calls for repentance. We're thankful for calling us unto yourself. And I ask, Lord, that if anyone among us is having trouble with being spiritually short-sighted, that they don't see you, that, Lord, you would reveal yourself to them, even by the ministry of his word that we've looked at today, that, Lord, you would make Christ and the, faith, the faithfulness and the, the forgiveness he has very real to them and very near to them, so that, Lord, they might latch on to you and that they might trust in you. I ask, Lord, that we would take our situations very seriously and that we would consider whether we really do look to God in all situations. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Mm-hmm.